0: Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron.
1: And I'm Chris Gilson.
0: And in this episode, we're talking about the state of Missouri, the results of the recent midterm elections, and whether or not 2018 has truly shaped up to be another year of the woman. So when we set out to talk about the record number of women running for office this year in 2018, We wanted to focus in part on Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill
1: of Missouri. But the midterms have come and gone. And while Democrats did win control of the House of Representatives, they also lost several Senate races, including McCaskill's, which allowed the Republican Party to hang on to their majority in the upper chamber of Congress. We'll dig more into this later, but McCaskill's loss in Missouri and Heidi Heitkamp's in North Dakota, another notable Democratic woman senator in a very conservative state, made us want to examine the pink wave a bit more closely. So before we look at how the midterms went for women, we're joined by our state expert, Sarah Scafidi, once again. This week, she's going to give us a rundown on Missouri. Hi, Sarah. How's it going?
2: Hey, Chris. I'm doing great. How are you?
1: Not too bad, thanks. So what do we need to know about the show-me state?
2: Well, Missouri is in the Midwest, and it's bordered by eight different states, which put it at a really great position in the 1800s for the westward expansion. In fact, that's where a lot of migrants started off their journey westward, and that's still memorialized today by the St. Louis Gateway Arch. It's also known as the birthplace of Maya Angelou and Mark Twain, and is one of the three states that's known as the birthplace of blues music. And Missouri is called the show me state because of a famous quote from Democratic Congressman Willard Vandiver in 1899, who said that, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton, cockleburs and Democrats, and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri, and you have got to show me.
1: That's fascinating. So would you say that Missouri is kind of the crossroads of the Midwest and the South? It sounds like it in terms of other the discussion about blues music and, and that kind of thing. But I also kind of think of maybe a bit, a bit more flatter land like the Midwest.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great way to characterize it. That wasn't really my view of it. But then doing this research for the state of the States, I realized it's got closer ties to the South than I originally knew.
1: And the Gateway Arch, it shows that it was sort of like the opening of American colonization by Americans, right? So would they have gone west to places like California and things like that starting in the Midwest there?
2: Yep, that's right. That was part of the Manifest Destiny.
1: Ah, maybe something for another episode.
2: So for this
0: episode, ahead of the midterms, we chatted with two experts about Missouri and women candidates. They outlined what they were expecting in Missouri specifically for Claire McCaskill but also for women who are running across the country?
3: Uh, Do you want the long version
0: or the short version? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) Let's do short version, then long version.
3: Okay, so we're in a situation here where we have a dead heat, a dead heat between Democrat Claire McCaskill and Republican Josh Hawley.
0: That's Robin Kuhlman. She's a regular contributor to the U.S. Center's USAP blog.
3: My name is Robin Kuhlman. I am Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Central Missouri. The incumbent is Claire McCaskill, and she's had a very long ride in politics. She's a very clever and savvy political opponent. Uh, Well, Josh Hawley is kind of running as a political outsider. And as a Republican, he's only served in office for two years as the attorney general. So he just came in on that 2016 um, election. Most notably here in Missouri, this is, uh, you know, if you look at the 2016 election, it kind of looks like Trump country, right? Where Trump won... 19% of the vote or the vote margin between um, Hillary Clinton during the presidential election. So if you're looking at 2016, you wouldn't necessarily expect a dead heat between a Democrat and a Republican. But here we are, you know, in Missouri, where statewide elections kind of don't uh, necessarily match um, the Republican stronghold that it seems to be.
0: Could you tell us about what Missouri looks like if I were to drive through it? and where I would find Democrats and Republicans if I were looking for them.
3: So let's say you're, you're to drive through Missouri. You're on Highway 70. Highway 70 cuts across the United States, right? East coast to west coast. Highway 70 essentially splits Missouri in, in half. You'd first, of course, enter Missouri on 70 on, um, into the St. Louis area. St. Louis area is highly Democrat, urban area. Also some poorer populations through there. And the suburban areas surrounding St. Louis had actually traditionally been quite conservative. Right now, that's kind of changing. Um, we're seeing some more competitive elections around the St. Louis area, but yet still kind of conservative. So if you're looking at those suburban areas, they're they're a mix of Republicans and Democrats. But much of the rest of the state driving through are rural areas. It's kind of interesting. Most of the state is incredibly rural. You know, you can drive north and south and see very, very small towns. The small towns can, can be towns that are only 500 people, 10,000 people. Um, a larger town in relative terms would be a town that's about 20 to 25,000 individuals. So not very developed in that sense. Um, And in those areas, of course, you have those, you know, conservative, white, evangelical individuals who reside north and south of I-70. And when you hit Kansas City, that's where you'll see that urban vote again, the urban liberal vote. So there's not much, you know, in between St. Louis and Kansas City. If you drive straight across the state, north and south of the state is incredibly rural. Missouri is kind of interesting when it comes to that because there are, in many instances, clear geographical differences and divisions in terms of how people live their life, what they believe, and of course, what party they are affiliated with. It's clear in terms of geography. When we get to those suburbs or those exurbs, it becomes a little less clear. However, they still are very few and far between.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the incumbent Claire McCaskill. How long has she been in office?
3: She has been in office since 2006. That was her first run for the Senate. She's running for her third term. Her first election was tight. um, So she's used to very tight, competitive, you know, statewide races. It was tight between her and Jim Talent. The second race in 2012 illustrates, I'd have to say, really does illustrate how politically savvy she is. Later on, um, she wrote about this particular race because she ended up actually running against Todd Akin, a very conservative Republican who ended up making some obvious political gaffes. And one of them being during the race, he had said that, you know, uh, a woman's body shuts down if it's a legitimate rape and she shouldn't get pregnant. Okay, Claire McCaskill, of course, was very uh, you'd have to say that she'd probably be very happy to hear a quote like that, because that essentially just. Doused his campaign and she she was no longer in a competitive race She claims after the race that she essentially handpicked Todd Akin out of the Republican primary knowing that he may make some statements like that in fact during the during the The Republicans primary campaign her campaign Was campaigning against Todd Akin and they weren't even in the general election yet and her campaign essentially was saying that Todd Akin is too conservative for Missouri. So, of course, those individuals who participate in the Republican primary are generally more or less a little bit further to the right. Hearing that message may have stimulated them to think that, oh, he's a strong competitor against Claire McCaskill. He's he's more in line with our views than these other other candidates. Um, And essentially, he won the Republican primary. So she says that she was politically calculative during that process. And essentially, you know, she wrote an article that stated in her memoir that she had handpicked Todd Akin out of the primary just to beat him in the general election. And, you know, some of the stuff she's she's doing in this race um, is politically clever as well.
1: So we knew the Senate map would be challenging for Democrats especially for Claire McCaskill and Heidi Heitkamp, who are both defending Senate seats in states that Donald Trump won by significant margins in 2016. And if you think about it, people have become even more partisan since Donald Trump's election two years ago, which made the job of winning their Senate seats back for these candidates and others even more difficult.
0: Do you think that there are unique or particular challenges for women running as incumbents this year? She's sort of a special... Example, I guess she and Heidi Heidkamp, in terms of being in really tough races, being women, being incumbents, being in states that voted for Trump. What are the challenges facing her in this year of the woman?
3: I think some in, the, in those particular states where you have states that are conservative or more conservative than others, whether or not a woman is a Republican or Democrat running for a particular seat, women tend to be seen as more liberal than they really are. And so if you have a conservative state, that can pose a problem for the electorate in terms of how they perceive them. In terms of research, there's no advantage between males and females in terms of their vote margin or vote shares. But there are different perceptions about them. Some of the unique challenges aside from just being seen as more liberal than men, are that they do have to work harder to seem qualified. Right? That's in the in the research. And so they actually may seem or may be perceived as easier to defeat than they really are. And so kind of, you know, ensuring and showing your feathers as a qualified candidate, it seems to be the challenge that these incumbent women have in this election.
4: I think it's maybe safer to say something like it might not be a female male thing so much as a is this an incumbent or is this a challenger or is this an open seat, right?
1: So that new voice you're hearing is Samantha Petty.
4: My name is Samantha Petty, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. We're looking at these races like Heidi Heitkamp and Claire McCaskill, and they're in these really tight races, and they are the incumbents in a blue wave year, right? So you would think that Heitkamp and McCaskill have a decent job of keeping their seat, but the political environment in both of those states are varying, where Heitkamp is in a pretty Republican leaning state and McCaskill is in, a, in another kite race, too, so I'm not sure it's so much to do with whether they're a female or male. I think in this election season, it has a bit more to do with are the women running in open seat elections because I think that's where they have the better chance of winning because we've talked about the incumbency advantage all the time where incumbents generally have a higher chance of being put back to office. But that is much more prevalent in the House and not so much for the Senate, which is why we're talking about these close races in the Senate with the female senators, Um, and maybe not so much about close races in the House with women incumbents.
1: While in the lead-up to the midterms, many eyes were focused on high-profile Senate races like McCaskill's, women actually turned out as candidates in record numbers all across the nation.
0: Yeah, that's right. 234 women ran for the House and 22 for the Senate with the vast majority of them in the Democrats' camp.
3: It is not an even split. We have 66 women running as Democrats and 29 women running as Republicans.
0: In terms of the two parties, what is the the difference in the number of Democratic and Republican women running for office this year?
4: Yeah, so there is a clear difference, right? Um, we have a pretty big partisan gender gap where the Democrats have done well, and this is due to, you know, party recruitment strategies and lots of other things. But specifically this year, it's not surprisingly different where 65% of Senate candidates are Democrats, 78% of House representative candidates are Democrats, 75% of the female governor are Democrats, and 71% of state legislative seats are coming from female Democrats rather than Republicans. So basically, big, overwhelming majorities of female Democrats running for office and much smaller groups of Republican women running for office.
0: But even though hundreds of women decided to run for office, they still had to fight some unique political battles that research shows male candidates typically don't encounter.
1: To talk more about the challenges facing women candidates in the midterms, we turn to Samantha Petty.
4: A lot of the research shows that women are kind of Socialized to be hands off in politics, but when we have these big movements where it's brought to the forefront that it's not even just Donald Trump getting elected, it's the fact that we had the first major Democratic nominee or any party really, Hillary Clinton on the ballot and lost. So that's also a big blow for women, and I think it brings to the forefront like no, we can do this. Like we should have women at these high levels of office. It's, we don't want just men. We can do a good job too. So I think it takes. Women, these big moments of politicizing things to bring to light that this is something where we should have more of a say. We should have more of a voice. And I think that was also brought to light, again, in the, in the Kavanaugh hearings, where you only have a handful of female senators on that committee hearing because there's just not many female senators at all. So, are there
0: specific challenges or obstacles that female candidates face in elections? Do they have any special advantages on the, on the flip side of that?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I'll start off with the advantages where, especially in this year, we're talking about this blue wave, a.k.a. the Democratic Party on the generic ballot has a pretty big lead, which is assuming that people want to see more Democrats in office. This works well in women's favor because there's lots of research that shows that voters view women as being more liberal, even if they're a Republican, they're kind of viewed as being a liberal candidate. So I think this time around, that is advantaging women, and this is going to help them. But the research is a little bit mixed on the other side about like the campaigning and do they face special challenges? Because there's this famous saying that pops up in all women's research is that when women run, they win. And it's true, they have equal chances of winning an the election. There's no overt bias anymore against women where nobody votes for them because they don't think they are qualified. It's It's other things. So it's... How is the media talking to you? Are you being talked about in the media in a sense that has nothing to do with your gender? Is gender being talked about? Like, are you being asked who's watching your kids, <laughs> um, what you're wearing? So that's a challenge women face. There's also mixed research about raising money. General, the outcome is the same. So women and men can raise the same amounts of money, but it, we find that women generally have to work a bit harder for these things. So the outcome of whether or not you can win the election seems to be similar, but research is kind of inclining and pointing to the fact that women are working much harder in their campaigns for these equal outcomes.
1: It was a pretty successful midterm for women candidates though, right?
4: Yeah, it
0: absolutely was. So we witnessed a number of notable firsts for women and the country as a whole. The first two Native American women to be elected to Congress Charisse Davids of Kansas and Debbie Holland of New Mexico. They'll both be in the House. And then in New York, we have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who at 29 is now the youngest woman elected to Congress. And she's just a few months younger than fellow 29-year-old and election winner Abby Finkenauer of Iowa. And of course, then we have the first Muslim woman as well, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan and Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. So they'll take their seats in the House as well.
1: So that's a big increase in the number of women in the House. Women will now make up 23% of Congress when it reconvenes in 2019, which is a new high. It wasn't all winning for women, though. So what happened in Missouri?
0: Well, even before the election, most people felt that it was going to be a really tough, tough race for Claire McCaskill and a really tough state for her to defend. She's a Democratic senator who's defending a seat in a state Trump won in 2016 with 56.4% 56.4% of the vote, so well over
3: 50%. Nothing has stuck out in this race that would drive the electorate away from Josh Hawley. Some of the stuff that she does is more or less kind of picking at his points or, you know, sending a message to the electorate that she's a moderate and try not to divide or. Push anyone away from her who may agree with conservatives to some extent on some issues
0: and again that's Robin Coleman
3: The biggest issue we have here is are issues over health care and the economy, so both candidates in a way have to ensure that they address those issues and 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 McCaskill has been very clear about her her stance and her concerns over health care health care. Is a major issue because you know it hits us hard in, the, in terms of the pocketbook. Prescription drugs are rising, and the insurance prices are rising, and you know um, there's fears of of going bankrupt essentially due to healthcare issues.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the different voters who may or may not have been swayed by the arguments on the Kavanaugh confirmation and the different arguments on the ACA and on on the economy that you mentioned who who are the particular coalitions of voters who could swing one way or another to decide this election
3: so there's the typical umbrella of coalitions that exist in this election when it comes to republicans and democrats you know the coalitions that exist in missouri for democrats of course are racial minorities women union members those living in urban areas, and some in suburban areas. Suburban areas are kind of this mix of conservative and liberal voters. On the Republican side, it's primarily suburban, white, male, industrial, and farmers, okay? And evangelicals as well. Let's not forget that. We're in the Bible Belt. In terms of who could be swayed one way or another, we kind of, you know, I I kind of look at this election as, There are those purely partisan voters, those who will vote their party line no matter what. And we know through political psychology that partisanship is a hell of a drug. (laughs) So, you know, you have individuals who vote Republican no matter what or Democrat no matter what. I think what concerns both campaigns are individuals not showing up to vote at this point. Individuals who who may not show show up to vote because of a lack of enthusiasm is the primary force, I think, that are keeping these campaigns going with uh, particular talking points concerning health care and, of course, the economy. In particular, you know, on the left, Claire McCaskill has been criticized by African-American community leaders that she, in fact, she does not pay as much attention to their needs. So there's, in a way, a threat of African-Americans not turning out to vote for her because they're just not enthusiastic. There's a lot of activity going on. Like when I, when I said this is not an easy election, that this election, in fact, is quite tricky. <laughs> you can kind nice. of see where I'm coming from when, when we start really, you know, pulling apart those coalitions and trying to decipher, you know, which groups are the ones that are going to really decide this election for Claire McCaskill or not or decide this election for Josh Hawley. When it comes to Josh Hawley, he's employed partisan warfare. He sticks to his guns with uh, Trump's policies, whether or not it's tariffs or the Kavanaugh vote. His campaign started off quite slow. And his campaign started off with, interestingly enough, with Republican leaders actually stating that They may have a little bit of buyer's remorse in endorsing Josh Hawley, and that was primarily because of the lack of enthusiasm that the electorate had for him. And he continues to kind of have this lack of enthusiasm, which I find quite interesting because only 51% of Republican voters strongly support Josh Hawley, while 76% of Democrats strongly support Claire McCaskill. So he's got a little bit of an enthusiasm problem. So his problems, of course, are, are votes in the bank, so to speak, for Claire McCaskill. However, if enthusiasm, you know, increases for Joshua, Lee, he may actually have an upper hand in this election. It's a close race. And and so the dynamics of the race kind of teeter on this issue of enthusiasm and also ensuring that you have your sections of your base turn out to vote.
0: How have you seen Claire McCaskill in her career battle those types of assumptions?
3: In general, at least what the what research illustrates is that that is a unique challenge that women have is that they have to work harder to illustrate that they're well qualified for the job. But what is interesting, though, is that still there there really is isn't a difference in terms of vote margins between males and female candidates. However, that is certainly something that many women in the political pipeline have to deal with. And you know Senator Claire McCaskill, along with all the other female candidates have to overcome that issue.
0: There's sort of like some, again, some counterintuitive things going on there because she has the incumbency advantage, but also being a female candidate means that people might underestimate her ability. So you have some conflictual things that the electorate's dealing with, some different type of benchmarks or heuristics that they're considering in this.
3: In a way, she she's constantly pointing to her credentials, pointing to her votes, pointing to the things she's been working on in the Senate. Pointing to her time as state auditor, pointing to her time as, you know, a prosecutor in Jackson County, that's the Kansas City area, and illustrating that she works closely with other male members of the Senate in a bipartisan way to get things done. It is quite interesting. And, you know, you don't really see, for example, you know, Josh Hawley doesn't have much to point to in terms of his work at the attorney general's office, but he doesn't really have to do that. Right. He's still a top contender in this race, someone who doesn't have political experience or much political experience. And, you know, some of the reports that are coming out right now about his time, you know, at the attorney general's office doesn't look all that great. But yet still, he's able to utilize partisanship to his advantage and um, maintain, you know, a dead heat in this race.
1: It looks like a lot of that came true. McCaskill's loss also tracks with what Samantha Petty and colleagues discovered recently in their research. They looked at how voters with strong ideological perspectives assess candidates on the opposite end of the spectrum and at how gender factors into their views.
4: So my colleagues and I were working on this, and it's our assumption was going in that, you know, we look at these biases and people are like, oh, there is not really bias anymore. People still win elections. But we wanted to look at it a different way, um, because you don't run an election in an abstract vacuum, right? So we started looking at the relative assessment of candidates. So rather than just looking at a female incumbent, we look at, is this female incumbent running against a quality challenger? So aka, is this a quality challenger? Do they have previous office holding experience? Are they well known? Or is it just somebody who's being thrown up there as a non-quality? And who knows why they're running, right? So the research that we did finds that depending on the gender of the respondent, the gender of the candidate, and the competitiveness of the race, you will have different assessments of candidates. So male Republican respondents tend to dislike female Democratic incumbents, which is you know the situation we're looking at with Highcamp and McCaskill. So you have male Republicans who are going to come out and vote in this election, but they tend to dislike the female Democratic incumbents a bit more than maybe a female challenger or something like that. So they tend to hurt the incumbents a bit more. Um, On the flip side, like women are not um, (laughs) getting off easy here either, where female Democratic respondents, they really dislike female Republican challengers. So they're much more likely to favor in the long run, a Democratic or Republican male. So it, it is kind of an interesting concept of looking at these relative assessments, because I think this is what we're coming down to in the couple of races that are close in the Senate we're talking about, because you have male Republican respondents who are disliking that female Democratic incumbent. McCaskill is in a pretty Republican-leaning state, but she's a Democrat, does look pretty moderate. She doesn't really vote with Trump all the time, but she doesn't vote against him all the time as other senators. So. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting to see because it's not like uh, male Republicans are not going to vote in this Senate election. So their idea about if Senator McCaskill has been you know, good policy-wise and other things might come into question with our research of how you evaluate these people.
0: Samantha also talked about what we might expect to see as this record-setting number of women actually get to work in Congress.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think we all expect one on the numbers side for the trend to continue. Um, It would be interesting to see if maybe Republican Party catches up and starts recruiting more women candidates, but I'm not sure that's being indicated right now. But overall, I think we will still see a steady increase of females entering government at all levels. From the policy standpoint, I think we'd see it much more at the state level. So states have become sort of the more... um, I will say nicely, the faster places to do things, Um, especially if we have a divided government with a Republican president and some sort of split Congress. So it's likely that we won't see big policy changes out of there in my expectation. But at the state level, if you have more women in office, whether they're the governors or whether they're the state legislators, research 100% 100% points to the fact that women legislate differently. They bring up different issues. So I would imagine we might see more policies dealing with healthcare, dealing with child care, dealing with women's rights, women's issues, um, especially if there are going to be checks from the court systems on these sorts of questions. I think women in these states, if they get the numbers, will will certainly see much more of what quote-unquote women's issues is what we call them being brought to the table.
0: And that's all from us this time on The Ballpark. Thank you to Robin Coleman and Samantha Petty. This episode of The Ballpark was produced by Michaela Herman with contributions from Sarah Scafidi, Denise Barron, that's me, and Chris Gilson. Also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can find them at rangerswings.com. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think about the show by emailing us at uscenter at lse.ac.uk or sending us a tweet at lse underscore us. You can catch up on all of our other ad-free episodes of The Ballpark by searching for us in your search engine of choice. Also, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Make sure you catch the next episode of The Ballpark. We'll be heading to the Badger State, Wisconsin.
1: Now, I want to ask something about Wisconsin. Yes. Are there badgers in Wisconsin? Because there's lots ah! of badgers in the UK. They're,
0: they look different. UK badgers and US badgers look very different. The, ah. Yeah, the UK badgers have the, the the white stripes, and the badgers of the badger state are brown.
1: Right, but they're similar, similar animal. It's not like they're UK not very robins nice. and... British Robins, which right. are completely different things. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. So,
0: Both badgers beat up on other animals.
1: Do they? Okay. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't sound good.
0: Play ball. In addition to being the badger state, Wisconsin, also the. Kind of like the cheese state. Oh yes, the dairy, the dairy state. state. Don't they? Yeah. um Don't they call cheese people heads. from?
1: Yeah, cheese heads. People wandering around like you see on TV programs and at sports events. Like they have these big. Well, the Green Bay cheese.
0: Packers. They're the cheese. Well, the uh-huh. fans wear big blocks of styrofoam cheese on their uh-huh. head, okay. as one does, of course. Yeah. You know.
3: Okay.